Hi and welcome to episode 104 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alegi. And our special guest today is our very own Michigan State University colleague, John Arne Flessner. He is an assistant professor in MSU's Residential College in the Arts and Humanities, where he teaches courses on sport and nationalism, global slavery, decolonization and development, and Malcolm X in Lansing. John's research has been published in the Journal of African History and in the edited volume, Peripheries of the Cold War. He has a new book titled The Desire for Development, Foreign Assistance, Independence, and Dreams for the Nation in Lesotho, forthcoming with the University of Notre Dame Press. His media appearances on the recent coup and then elections in Lesotho include interviews on Radio France International and articles in the Huffington Post, the Daily Maverick, Mail and Guardian, and on the Africa is a Country website. You can follow him on Twitter at Lesotho John. Welcome, John. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Can you start by telling us a little bit of background about the path that led you to become a historian of the small landlocked mountain state of Lesotho? I would love to. I, uh, directly out of undergrad, I came out with a bachelor's degree in history and a secondary education teaching license from Grinnell College in Iowa and was given the opportunity to teach high school for a year at St. Rodrigue High School in the foothills of the Maluti Mountains. Um, it was an amazing experience, and uh, I, I really fell in love with with Lesotho. had a had an incredibly positive experience um, out out in the rural areas. And after teaching high school for a couple more years back in the United States, I decided that what I really wanted to do was to get back to Lesotho and study its its people and culture and and history, and then teach about it at the undergraduate level. And your forthcoming book does a very nice job to show how development and nationalism and the idea of independence are intertwined. And I think it's difficult to read your work without noting its uh, explicit links to that famous book by James Ferguson, the anthropologist uh, who wrote Antipolitics Machine, Development, Depoliticization, and Bureaucratic Power in Lesotho. It was a very influential book. I remember reading it as a graduate student uh, in a seminar with uh, James Scott. Uh, about that uh, farming and cattle keeping modernization project run by the Canadian uh, Development Agency, backed up by the World Bank, and uh, the, the main point of that book, I guess, was the that development uh, was being pushed as a kind of technocratic process that existed completely outside of formal politics. Can you share with the listeners then uh, some of the evidence? that led you to conclude, as you put it in the book, that, quote, the anti-politics machine, which, of course, Ferguson focused on, uh, came up in the mid-'70s, but was actually constructed much earlier, in the 50s and 60s, you say, uh, and that the efforts of both the colonial and independence-era governments to control, to centralize, and use development to promote their political agenda, um, and the authoritarian turn of the Lesotho government uh, during the early years of the 1970s. Yeah, um, the the anti-politics machine was was very influential in in the writing and the framing of of this book. And in fact, the the central research question that this started with was 
why did Lesotho politicians and, and individuals within Lesotho acquiesce um, or take part in, in these processes that led to the, the loss of sovereignty for Lesotho so soon after independence? Ferguson traces uh, the anti-politics machine. He dates it to about 1975, which is nine years after Lesotho becomes independent from, from the British government. Um, and and the question motivating the research is is why would people why would people go along with that project? Um, and so the the book traces how and why this was actually a logical response from from Basutu politicians and also from ordinary Basutu. Um, basically, the the argument runs that in order to push the colonial administration to give up power. Uh, to devolve power locally quicker, uh, Basutu politicians and, and educated youth adopted the language of development to make claims on the late colonial state. This is, you know, part of processes that are taking place across the continent in the 50s and 60s. Um, but through this increased rhetoric and, and um, claim making on the colonial state, uh, local actors, uh, both within the political system and, and outside of it, came to internalize the rhetoric of development as being synonymous with and part and parcel of the independence project. Um, and so as, as this became, um, as, as I call it in the book, a development consensus, that uh, development was, was necessary for and a marker of independence, um, it percolated through through larger segments of society, outside of the political classes, outside of just those with, with education, out into the rural areas, and, and people came to equate development with with independence. So so as independence came, the government, in order to maintain legitimacy in the in the first five years to win electoral support, uh, attempted to promote development heavily. Um, and were largely unsuccessful at, at gaining funding to do this from, from outside donors and didn't have a lot of access to, to internal monies because Lesotho was and is a very poor country. Um, simultaneous, though, the, the internalization of the link between development and independence meant that local people across rural communities were working for the developments that they wanted to see. They were constructing school buildings, sometimes on their own, sometimes with minor government assistance, they were constructing village water supply projects to make water safer and, and more accessible in a centrally located tap, um, you know, out there digging communal trenches to, to lay pipe from nearby springs, things like this. Um, and so development uh, became its own, its own internally logical system that people were pushing for. Um, and so by the time the 1970s rolled around, after the Basutu National Party government uh, took took power in a coup in 1970, they really had no other pathway to legitimacy. And so they attempted and finally were able to, through changing geo global geopolitics, to access foreign funding in, in large amounts. And so this led to the anti-politics machine where everyone is involved and imbricated in the project to bring about development no matter the consequences. I want to come back later to some important aspects of this story, uh, in particular youth and the, the local scene. Uh, but keeping in mind this, this technocratic theme and what you've been talking about, um, can I turn now to some of the specific projects that uh, I think you treat in, 
you know, in, 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 in depth and with such verve in the book. And uh, in particular, can you explain the significance or the lessons of the 1970s Taba Bossu project? Uh, it has, uh, as will be evident to anyone who's climbed this majestic, uh, the majestic mountain of the same name, an ambitious ring about it. But you show how ideas of uh, improving agriculture with purely technocratic solutions have a long and sad history and were underpinned by dogmas by both governments and banks that Basutu farmers, peasants were stubborn, they were responsible for their own poverty. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there with the Tababasiu project. It was the first large area-based agricultural project funded in the independence era. It was financed mostly by USAID, uh, but with some assistance from the World Bank. It, it drew on other regional precedents like the Lalongwe project in, in Malawi. Uh, but it had a much deeper history within Lesotho. It drew on uh, a colonial report dating to the 1930s, the PIM report, which, which called for similar sorts of, of rural agricultural development opportunities. Uh, the the uh, more use of fertilizers, more use of tractors, uh, consolidating land into bigger, bigger units, and um, improving the breeding stock in the hopes of improving rural, rural livelihoods. And there were a couple of large colonial agricultural projects in the 1950s and into the early 1960s that ran on, on similar lines. So while it was new in, in the post-1970 independent Lesotho era, it was also not new in that it was run very much like the, the prior projects. So local people had a lot of experience with, with similar types of projects. And one of the chief complaints amongst rural Basutu with all of these projects was that they had very little input, that they were top-down, very centralized affairs where people uh, were, were consulted in the sense that they were told what was going to happen, um, but not consulted in the sense that they could, in fact, have input and say, this has not worked in the past, how about we modify it to make it work better in these particular ways? Um, and so that, that type of input is actually central to the, the form of development that many rural Basutu were envisioning that would bring about independence. Uh, because as I argue in the book, everyone is using the language of development, but they are meaning very different things by the term. For government planners, for USAID bureaucrats, development means centralized projects that um, you know, improve efficiency and, and service delivery in the, in the nomenclature of contemporary Southern Africa. Uh, whereas for, for rural Basutu, they wanted the economic opportunities and the increased government services, but they also saw uh, a, con a public input component as being central to the realization of independence because they, they wanted political participation both in development projects and in government structures. I think that's a very important point you're making in the book, uh, the way that uh, ordinary Basutu farmers, if you like, claim development for themselves, and that it wasn't just this top-down thing, but that top-down, often ham-fisted approach in other parts of Africa and just across the border in South Africa, uh, in this earlier period uh, especially, uh, created, as you mentioned, a lot of resentment. There was uh, forced cattle dips, even 
dips of, of human beings and uh, this obsession with erosion and uh, betterment. But And uh, we will get to uh, uh, some of these things in future, but... Um, well, that's actually a, a great bridge to my next question, which is the wider implications of the stories you tell in the book. I like the way in which you put Lesotho in the context of the region of Southern Africa, as well as the African continent as a whole in the late colonial and then independence period. And Lesotho's status as a, an enclave nation surrounded by South Africa makes it a rather unique case. And there is, of course, a very large and diverse academic literature on so many different aspects of the Lesotho-South Africa links, whether it's political economy, labor migration, literature and culture, uh, as Peter just mentioned, the environmental devastation, of course, resistance politics, etc. So how does your book advance our understanding of the history of the Lesotho-South Africa relationship, but also importantly, Basotho perceptions of these relations? Yeah, it's it's a central question to to anyone who studies Lesotho, um, which is how how are you going to treat the relationship with with South Africa, and it's not just a, a question for the scholarship either, because it's a it's a day to day concern for for Basotho in in Lesotho, at the time to this day. Um, it's it's the question of work permits, the questions of borders, the questions of visas, um, the questions of, of transfers across the border of large amounts of water and sums of money. Um, these, these questions are absolutely central to the day-to-day -day concerns of, of many, many Basutu. Um, in terms of the, the contribution of this work, I think that one of the more important points it makes is this question of planners and government officials dismissing the ways in which ordinary Africans are engaging, attempting to engage with the state. Um, I think this dismissal is, is very important historically in terms of understanding quote-unquote developmental resistance, uh, but it's also important in terms of understanding African relations to the state uh, that, that continue to this day. In, in many cases, people don't have a lot of space to, to interact in positive ways with, with state actors, whether they are development-oriented uh, development or, or not. Um, and, and in this case in Lesotho, the, the government and, and planning bodies are, are incredibly dismissive of the views of, of ordinary Basotho. There's a, there's a petition uh, that's, that's sent as part of the Tababasiu project that, that Peter was talking about earlier, um, in which opposition supporters are, are asking planning agencies abroad for more powers for the Lesotho government, which they do not support, because they see the Lesotho government as being potentially more responsive than having to deal with aid bureaucrats from Washington um, either the World Bank or, or USAID. And I think this is really telling in terms of, of how Africans are seeing themselves. They want to be, in the independence era as, as well as into the present, they want to be active citizens. They want to be active participants in these development projects to help shape them in useful ways. They don't want projects to become massive boondoggles, um, opportunities for state capture and, and other sorts of things. They want them to be a stimulus for, for local economies. They want to, to benefit from, from the projects and don't just want to see shiny new houses for, for the workers 
uh, on, on the nearby hills. Um, and so I think that the, the story of the desire for African popular participation in government and, and development is, is a really important theme that I hope my book brings out. Bringing this all right up to date, um, could you also uh, relate this, going beyond the time span of the book, to the long-running uh, but still very uh, prominent and acrimonious Lesotho Highlands Water Project because that also is something that's deeply embedded in unequal relations. Yeah, it's, it's completely embedded, is, and I like how you put that, in, in unequal relations. The, the 1986 treaty that started the Highlands Water Project formally uh, was signed between the apartheid government and a Lesotho military government that came to power only because of an apartheid blockade that, that brought down the previous government. Um, and so it was embedded in unequal relations, but the project actually stretches back to the colonial era. The first water surveys and proposals for it were conducted uh, under the auspices of, of the British colonial government. Um, and it was something that both Basutu politicians and also many of the ordinary Basutu who I interviewed for, for this book project really put their hopes on. It was, it was a dream for an independent Lesotho. It was a way that Basutu could see themselves um, building, building a national community and, and building a state that was viable. Yes, it would still be completely interlinked with South Africa, but it would be interlinked in a way where South Africa was reliant upon Lesotho. And so people were using the possibility of this project in the 50s and 60s to, to build their visions for, for what independence could look like in Lesotho. It was really the only large-scale development project that, that people saw any viability in in the late colonial period and, and early independence period. Um, the fact that it came to fruition only in a form that uh, many disliked, um, I think, is you know ironic on some level, tragic on on another. Uh, the displacements out of phase one and phase two of the project were. were and it took a long time to realize it. It took a very long time to realize it. Uh, Katsi Dam wasn't you know completed until the late 1990s. Um, same with same with Mohali Dam, the first two, and the third dam is is just now starting to go out uh, for tender uh, to to be constructed. And in essence, it's pumping water from the highlands of Lesotho to the metropolis of of Johannesburg and Pretoria. For keep lawns green and things. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, the, the critique of it. Um, and to, you know, there, there are benefits to it. It has improved the road network within the mountains. Mm -hmm. There are a few knock-on opportunities, uh, things like trout farming in in the Katsi Reservoir. Uh, so there have been some minor, you know, you know minor economic opportunities that, that aren't directly related to, to construction or, or state revenues. Um, and the state revenues are very important. They do, they do help run a lot of the the social service programs that the Lesotho government does run, the health clinics, the, the education system, um, these, these sorts of things. So it's, it's a very mixed bag, and people view it that way. Uh, there's, there, is, there is some resentment over the fact that Lesotho suffers greatly from drought and still pumps millions upon millions of, of gallons of water a day to Johannesburg. Um, but there's also uh, a, an acknowledgment and, and a hope that the dams could be so uh, the dams could be 
a positive thing for the future. So in, in many ways, this the argument that I'm making from the 1950s to the 1970s that development becomes a hopeful ideology for many rural Basutu is still alive in the Highlands Water Projects despite the very trenchant critiques that many have. Indeed, yes. And one of our previous speakers on this uh, program, Bob Hitchcock, has worked long and hard on that uh, particular issue. Can we uh, maybe now switch around and address the role of young people uh, youth, a major player in your book. And, and again, I think a very innovative uh, application uh, uh, that you show both theoretically and empirically, uh, despite their acknowledged significance um, um, globally uh, and in Africa, uh, there's a surprising lack of detailed youth studies in some areas. And youth today are much in the news, of course, across the border. Uh, again, with students driving a potent fees must fall campaign that's morphed into an equally strong Zuma must fall mood. Um, but in the book, you uh, interestingly refer to Basutu youth performing development, and you make the analogo, analogy to the uh, PITSO or meeting performances uh, that are very common in Lesotho. So I was wondering, how did youth fit into uh, these dreams of development? How active was their role on this terrain? And perhaps how might they have been exploited by government and corporate players? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, youth are absolutely central to, to the story that I tell, uh, starting in the 1950s. The the major colonial investment in development uh, in the in the post-World War II era is an expansion of the secondary and tertiary education system in Lesotho. The colonial government can think of very few other ways in which to promote development. Uh, so, they, so they expand the schools by working through the missions. What this does is it contributes to a massive population of Basotho youth who have more education than any other generation in Lesotho. And these these youth become politically active, uh, or at least politically interested, and they imbibe the, the rhetoric of, of development and, and come to see their futures intertwined with the realization of some forms of development in Lesotho. So they are early, early adopters of the development consensus, and they are going back to their rural communities and, and extolling the virtues of that as well. Um, the problem I had methodologically was, in terms of doing oral histories, was how you ask people about how they were feeling about specific things at specific times and how they untangle that from all of their, the, the other 40 years of experience with development, many of those experiences of which have been negative. Um, and so one way I got around that was by asking them not what they were thinking, but what they were doing. And so I talked to a lot of people who were involved in youth organizations like the Boy Scouts, like cadets, uh, like the Girl Guides, um, the Young Farmers Associations, things like this, and asked them what were, their, what were their organizations doing? And many of them said, we were building. We were building in communities. We were building our own knowledges through discussions, through conversations about independence, wide-ranging. Um, with reference to developments in South Africa politically, uh, with reference to decolonizations taking place across the continent. 
and then they were acting out their, their visions for the nation by doing volunteer trips to build rural health clinics, to build schools, to erect windmills, to, to allow for the pumping of groundwater to, to dry communities, things like this. And I argue that this is symbolic of the development that students wanted to see, popular, participatory, uh, grassroots-driven, community needs-driven, uh, not one-size-fits-all, not blanket area randomly selected by, by uh, planners and, and politicians for political purposes. Um, and this is a very different conception than the state actors are, are using. So I think that the youth are a very important part of the story and they, they bring about the, the bottom-up perspective that is so, so different and helps to highlight the, the differences in terms of what people meant when they said development uh, between, between politicians and, and planners on one side and, and people at the grassroots on the other. Can you unpack this category of youth a little bit for us? Uh, you know, because you talk about Boy Scouts and, and Girl Guides. You also talk about university students, uh, university Christian movement, uh, for instance, uh, and you mention sports clubs, uh, and you talk about Mopato and so on. So can you talk about maybe the differences between male and female youth or between educated youth, uh, you know, highly educated youth and, and non, um, just unpack it a little bit for us? Yeah, and I mean, there, there were big differences, especially in terms of, of access. Um, in terms of starting with the category of educated youth, there were actually, for most of this period, more Basutu girls in school than, than Basutu boys, which is um, a result of both the history of, of labor migration, uh, but also the the practice of herding. Uh, boys often spent some years out in the hills with, with the, the family's sheep and, and cattle, and so they either started school later or didn't go to school, um, hoping to rely on, on migrant labor to, to support families. Um, so so there's, a, there's a big group of educated, educated girls, much bigger than most other colonial African settings. Um, in terms of the, the educated youth versus those who don't have access to, to the higher education, there is a bit of a divide um, in terms of participation in these formal groups. Uh, but at the same time, a number of my informants said that when, you, when they came back to their, to their villages on school holidays, you know, they were still running in the same social circles. So they are, they are coming from a similar milieu, but they are not fully leaving that either. Um, and they said that you know, a lot of their, their peers who were not in these organizations were, were still participating in those conversations about politics, conversations about development, what does independence look like? Um, and this was mediated in some ways by the, by the reach of politics into, into the rural areas, the, the rural rallies that are, that are being held before elections in 65, before elections in 1970. Um, and so, you know, it's not an undifferentiated class. I'm certainly not, not arguing that. Uh, but there is, there is more coherence than simply splitting it into educated and non-educated would would imply uh, because many of those who would fall into the non-educated class also had significant primary education as well uh, because there are primary schools in every village across the country at this time. And so most Basutu have, have some education. It has the highest literacy rate in, in colonial Africa, um, you know, over, over 60%. So, Speaking of youth, 
More than 60,000 Peace Corps volunteers have served in almost every African country since 1961. I read a statistic before coming here that said 39% of the current Peace Corps volunteers serve in Africa. And in a couple of chapters in your manuscript, you discuss the Peace Corps as an element of the internationalization of local politics in Lesotho during the Cold War. And you even note that the Peace Corps were, between 1965 and 1970, the only visible aid and development project of any large scope in the country. So can you briefly speak to the Peace Corps volunteers' impact in Lesotho, but also maybe reflect on what you tell U.S. students, they often ask me this question, uh, who want to join the Peace Corps, should they go or not, and why? Because by the time they're done in our courses, they're often torn between this empathetic liberalism and a much better understanding of the meaning of U.S. soft power and also the complicated politics of foreign aid. So what do you tell them? There's a lot there. Uh, let, me, let me start by tackling a question you didn't ask, which is why use oral histories with Peace Corps volunteers as a source base for, for this project. And it has to do in part with the state of the archives um, in Lesotho, which is in general very poor. Uh, it's hard to find a lot of government documents from, from this time. And the problem that I spoke about earlier with the, the problem of the memory of Basotho with trying to unpack specific times and places. Um, I realized that the only people whose memories of Lesotho would be completely bounded to the independence era were these Peace Corps volunteers who served in two and three year increments starting in 1967 um, and, and going forward to the present. Um, I looked at volunteers who served from 1967 to about 1973. Um, and so they Many of them have not been back to Lesotho, so while they were not fully understanding or cognizant of, of the political, local political implications of all of their actions, they were on the ground in these villages working in the small-scale development projects that, that this book is examining. In terms of the role they were playing, the Peace Corps, as, the, as you noted, the, the largest development project underway in Lesotho was not just highly visible, but also intertwined completely with politics. It was seen as the personal project of Prime Minister Leabua Jonathan. He uh, personally negotiated the, the arrival of volunteers. He visited the first training camp in San Diego um, on one of his trips to address the United Nations. Um, he took the time to fly all the way across the United States to, to visit the first group, which suggests the degree to which uh, he was invested in, in the program succeeding, and the opposition was equally invested in attacking the program. They picked up on, on rhetoric from other places in the continent of, of the Peace Corps being CIA stooges and, and spies and, um, you know, a, a, an avenue for neocolonialism. And the political rhetoric was hot and heavy f through 1967-1968 around, around the Peace Corps, and many of the, many of the first volunteers found their first postings to be very uncomfortable places to be because of, of hostility from opposition supporters with, within Lesotho. Um, most of them, however, were embedded in the civil service, either as high school teachers or working with uh, the Department of, of Community Affairs, um, working on water projects and, and these sorts of things, or with community credit cooperatives, agricultural cooperatives. Um, and what they, what most of them said, and what most 
Basutu, who remembered Peace Corps from this time, also said was that the Peace Corps volunteers who were there quickly won over most individuals. That they, you know, they actually did live out the Peace Corps motto of person-to-person -person contacts and, you know, came to be respected co-workers, even if they were young, naive, innocent, and fairly unknowledgeable about the political implications of, of the projects that, that they were running. Um, and so while the Peace Corps as an institution was, was heavily politicized, the Peace Corps on the ground um, quickly became embedded in local communities. Um, and and for, for most of the years that it was in Lesotho, they've had a very good reputation uh, within, within rural communities for, for the work that they do. Um, so to your question about how you advise American undergrads about the Peace Corps, um, I, I say when, when students ask, you're supposed to be conflicted about the work you're doing if you decide to join the Peace Corps. Um, on one level, it is you are an arm of the United States government. You are a branch of foreign policy. On the other level, you can make real, sincere, and deep connections and contacts with people and do important work in, in your time there. If you are okay living this tension, then by all means join the Peace Corps. If you have serious hang-ups about aspects of that, then perhaps you should find a different way to, to channel your energies. Um, and know that your reception within local communities is going to be based on the history that they have with volunteers, with particular projects, and with the ways in which Peace Corps has and has not successfully negotiated the political minefield that in many ways they have set up. Let's uh, stay on the ground, as you say, and uh, I do like the way you deploy the small is beautiful paradigm to demonstrate that small scale allows better focus on how local people interact. And of course, scholars such as Ferguson and Kate Showers on erosion, Mark Eprecht on gender, have examined aspects of development in Lesotho, but I'm thinking, what about the, this political sphere that you've started to talk about, uh, how it operates at the local level? And of course, we've had um, Bob Edgar and Richard Weisfelder and others looking at politics and others such as uh, the late Colin Murray and Peter Sanders have uncovered all kinds of complex cultural, migratory and religious trails. Um, but how did the internal politics of development, as mediated by, you mentioned government, but also African royalty or, chiri, or chiefs, the, the Morena, uh, the political parties, you mentioned the opposition, how did this all play out, this synergy at the local level? It, it was very complicated. Uh, and, and particular projects, especially in the independence era were, were largely handed out as, as patronage opportunities. And when I say projects, I mean small community-based projects, the building of a new classroom or the, the laying of, of water pipe was, was in large part dependent on, at least for the period 1965 to 1970, the political sympathies of either the village or the chief um, or, or the religious in affiliation of of these, which which correlated strongly with with political affiliation, um, and so the the local politics were were absolutely central to who received projects, who was even eligible to 
to to find uh, to find the money for for such projects. I, I did some interviews. The Basutu National Party was was largely identified with the Catholic Church, and so a couple of my informants were were Catholic nuns who said independence was just marvelous because they could go down to Maseru, walk into the minister's office, and come out with enough money to build a new science wing for their school. Um, this was obviously echoed uh, in the opposite way by, by, opposition, uh, by opposition supporters who said that after independence they found it very hard going to get state support for, for projects in their, in their villages. Um, and, and politicians made this explicit. In the 1970 campaign, for instance, Leabua Jonathan goes to a constituency in the north that his party had lost in 1965, but in which he had built a, a candle factory and said, if you do not support the Basutu National Party in the 1970 elections, you will not get development support in this constituency. So the links were being explicitly made. People understood them. Um, and yet, at the local level, people sometimes overcame that as well, uh, simply by ignoring the state and working for the development projects that they wanted to see. I interviewed a, a Catholic Boy Scout leader from, from the Northern Lowlands who said he was asked repeatedly to join the, the ruling Basutu National Party, and he said no, because my Boy Scouts were working with all different types of communities to assist in these water projects, and I wanted to remain non-political. So there were people who were pushing back against the the national narrative, the national mood at the local level, um, but it was determining in many ways who received aid for projects and, and who did not. Well, maybe we have time for one final question. Given that the picture you paint of development in Lesotho is one that implicates everyone at multiple levels, ordinary people as much as chiefs and political and business elites and so on, and that these development projects are seen as sources for jobs, for patronage, of course, accessing services, even upward mobility, you point out. Should this whole scheme of foreign aid then be seen as a failure that encourages relationships of dependence among the poor and that thus should be eliminated, as many critics on the right have argued in recent years. I think you're Dambisa Moyo, among others. Uh, no, no, I don't think that this book advocates for, for the ending of, of aid or development assistance. I, I think what it's doing is calling for a better understanding of the implications of, of such projects. They are not value-free. They do support particular institutions, particular politicians, um, the, the current debates within Lesotho uh, are still centered around, around development, with the United States completely embroiled in, in the controversy over whether to renew Lesotho's status under AGOA, the, uh, with, with the textile manufacturing that, that goes on in, in Maseru with the produce your gap genes and, and other things. Um, the, the Americans are saying we might cut off AGOA access if security reforms are not implemented, if the government does not show satisfactory progress according to you know, the, their metrics. Um, and so I think that this calls for a, a better understanding about how local people are engaging with development, about how people are impacted with it, and how it's not a value-free process. Um, all that said, you know, development, while 
being a quote-unquote failure in terms of the project goals in many cases is a success in bringing about many of these things you're talking about, local employment, uh, opportunities for, for people to engage with the state in new ways, new infrastructure, these, these sorts of things that have legacy impacts long after the project and its controversies are, are past. Um, and so, so, no, I don't think this calls for the, the ending of aid. I think it calls for a greater and deeper understanding of, of what aid is doing and what purpose various actors are, what purpose various actors have in pushing for the continuation or the ending of aid. John, thanks very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.